The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, we're looking at Galatians chapter 4 if you'd like to follow along in the bulletin or your Bible app, Bible. We have a rule in our family. I'm sure your family has some rules too. And this, this rule was never formally established. It just kind of came to be. And you probably have similar laws codified in your home. Here's the law. If you see something good, like a really good movie or a good TV show, and other family members haven't seen it yet, you are not allowed to spoil it. And if you do, you're going to hear about it, okay? So um, you want everybody else to enjoy the story. Well, we're going to break the code this morning. The Apostle Paul is giving a spoiler. These three verses in Galatians 4 are the cliff notes, the spark notes, of the summing up the whole Bible in less than a paragraph or three verses. Sometimes those spoilers can be helpful so that you can understand the plot line better to take in the landscape and the contours of the scenery of the Bible as it paints this drama of rescue, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. This is the ultimate I should be dead episode, but it's also the greatest love story that was ever told. Here it is. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord, oh, if we understood the depths and the height of your love for us. This is love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand, to drink this in, that it would satisfy our hearts. Satisfy us with your unfailing love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at this morning, as we look at this, just the when, the who, the how, and the why. What, when did God do this? Who did God send? How did God do it? And why? The storyline of the Bible. Well, we're told here that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. We know in the big picture of Scripture, God has said in Ecclesiastes, he's, God makes everything beautiful in his time. And his time is not our time. And the Bible says here in the fullness of time, why was this the fullness of time? And the ultimate answer is we don't know. We have nice fancy 
reasons that we like to give, historical reasons like Pax Romana, and it sounds really sophisticated and smart that all roads lead to Rome, and you know, it's the best time for the gospel to spread. We've got some peace. But that's man's understanding of God's providence. But ultimately, we're not told why now this was the fullness of God. Why would God wait a few thousand years after Adam's sin to bring from a woman one who would crush the serpent's head, which he had promised, to fulfill the first gospel promise in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. Here we are many, many books later, 39 books of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament canon is complete, and God has made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and more promises to Moses, and David, and then Solomon, and then all those major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, that tell us that his own arm is going to bring salvation. He's going to bring a new covenant. It's going to be a righteous branch, a suffering servant. He's going to give us a new heart, and he's going to put his spirit in us, and it's all pointing to a Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem of David, born of a virgin, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of his government and peace, there'll be no end. And now in the fullness of time, God sent his son, conceived from the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, yet without sin. And yet in context, this fullness of time means something a little bit more than that. If you read the epistle of Galatians, you always want to read in context, it's referring to the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Galatians is all about Abraham. And Abraham, this promise that was made to Abraham, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And this promise to Abraham was made 430 years before the law, the Ten Commandments, were ever given. Galatians 3.17. And the law is given at Mount Sinai, and this law becomes our tutor, our schoolmaster. And it's a pretty rough schoolmaster, because this schoolmaster is revealing our sinfulness, that we can't live up to this law. It's a bar that we can't get over. And we are constantly reminded that we are a sinful people, sinful hands, sinful hearts, sinful minds, sinful words, in word and in deed. And so Paul is giving this illustration of our need for Christ. In the beginning of chapter 4, he's describing what it's like to be waiting for the people of God of old, to be waiting for the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that they're still under God's law in this tutor. And he says, being like this, having this promise, is being like a son who hasn't come of age yet. He's he's an heir, but for all intents and purposes, he's no better off than a slave because the promise isn't his yet in reality. And so... For the people in the Roman Empire, they understood this because there were lots of slaves and lots of sons, and and the son didn't become a full son until age 14. And then there was this big ceremony on a certain day in March, I think it was, the 17th of March, and they became a full heir of the promises and all the things that were theirs as, as being children. But before that, the slave and even the people that worked in the house were had it over the son because they they weren't. They couldn't really enjoy anything yet. 
It's a promise, but it's a promise not yet in reality. And yet the people in, in the book of Galatians are wanting to go back to bondage of trying to be under the law again and start living out all of the requirements of the law. And, and the whole point of Galatians is you've been set free from that. You're now a son. You're no longer a slave. And so in reality, these people of God of old were waiting for the promise. And they were sons, and, but the promise wasn't a reality yet. And so they weren't really experiencing the fullness of what it meant to live as sons and daughters of God. And so as you read the Old Testament, you don't see much prayer to our Father. That was utterly shocking when that came out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 6. Our Father. And all this talk about being sons. Try finding that in the Old Testament. You got maybe a reference or two in Psalm 103 and a few obscure references, but God is not referred to as Father. This is a big change in the New Testament. And so maybe if I were to describe this by way of illustration of what this would have been like for the people of God of old as they're waiting for this fullness of time. When I was a child, I loved going to amusement parks. I loved going to carnivals. I loved riding the rides. I loved especially roller coasters, and I loved anything that moved, and particularly anything I could steer. So I loved bumper cars. That was just like I loved hitting people. You know, that was just so much fun, right? But you would, as a kid, I've, I've, you're, I know you're going to have a hard time believing this, but I was always short. <laughs> and I was always, there was like one of the shortest people in the class. And so I would go to the carnival, and I, you know, you paid to go to the carnival, you got the tickets in the carnival, you'd think you're a full right, uh, an heir to all of the promises of all the carnival. But lo and behold, you would get up to the line, and you'd be right up there to ride the bumper cars, and there's a kid up there with a, with a measuring stick and a, and a line. And you got to be, you guys are looking at me like you don't remember this. Short people will remember, any kids know what this is like? You've got to be 48 inches tall to ride this ride. Sorry, pal, maybe next year. And some of them were even like 50 or 52 inches because, you know, the, the, the harness wouldn't be big enough to hold you on the roller coaster. You might actually slide out. So it is important that you actually meet the height requirement, okay? But I hated that as a kid. And then finally, when I became of age, when I was 15... My sophomore year in high school, there was this infamous trip that I went with my cousins, my aunt and uncle and my first cousins. We went to South Carolina, and I got in a lot of trouble on that trip. A lot of shame-filled stories, but here's one of them. So they had a Grand Prix ride, and this was next to the go-kart track, and it was even better. And some of you have done this thing before. It's a time track. You wear a helmet. You only had to have a learner's permit to be able to ride this thing. I, for some reason, that's how it worked. But Because I, I was only 15 years old, but I was able to ride this Grand Prix thing. And you put on the helmet, and you, and you, you know, it's, this is like a real car. I mean, as for a 15-year-old, this was really impressive. But the way this thing worked was, is it had the gas on the right, and the brake on the left like any good car should be. The problem was the design of the Grand Prix car is it had a metal bar that ran right down in the middle of the thing. So that you're, as I was taught by my dad, over and over and over again, never use two feet while driving. 
always use one foot. Take your foot off the gas, apply it to the brake, same foot. Parents, you, you, you with me on this? We've done this teaching, right? Well, the problem was I got my helmet and all of my family's watching. I mean, even my aunt's best friend is watching, my first cousin, and I loved an audience, and I was going to show them I was the grand, best Grand Prix driver ever to run this track. Well, I didn't even make it to the, to the green light because I applied the gas to pull up. I reached my foot off, reached over for the brake, hit the metal bar, couldn't reach the brake, came back down on the gas and wondered why it didn't stop and pressed harder. And I floored the gas and plowed into the guy in front of me. And the guy in charge of the whole thing said, you, if you can't even make it to the starting line, there's no way that you can make it around the track. Take off your helmet, get your money back, you're out. Shame. Public shame in front of everybody in my whole family. Helmet comes off the moment of shame. Well, back to our story. That's what it's like to be under this tutelage of the law, is that you're constantly experiencing the shame of never being good enough. You're trying, you're trying, but you're not there. Well, in this story, what we see is that God came down for us. I like David Platt's little description of how, are, how is Christianity different from all the other religions. And he just, you know, he just gives the classic illustration of all the other religions are, it's like we're all going to try and get to the top of the mountain. doesn't matter which path you choose, and you'll get to the top. And, right? And he says, wrong. He says, the, the story of the Bible is that God realized nobody could get up to the top of the hill. The Bible says nobody's righteous. Nobody seeks him. And so God had to come down from the top. And he came down into our world so that he could restore us, reconcile us, and do what we couldn't do, which was to live out the law and actually keep the law. And so we'll get to that in a second. So we're going to see what God did. He says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God wasn't obligated to redeem humanity. He didn't redeem fallen angels, did he? They didn't get a second chance. And we are told in Jude chapter 6 that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Do we think we deserve a better lot than the angels that fell? Do we deserve something better or worse? Is our sin less than theirs or greater? Well, God had mercy upon us. And he made a promise to Abraham that through him, through his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham said, well, give me a sign. How is this going to be? And what did God tell him? Get the animals. Cut the animals. Cut the pieces. And when you made a covenant like that, the lesser always walked through. Not the superior, but in this story of Abraham, as you remember from Genesis 15, God kept the covenant. He swore, he made a promise, and then he gives a sign and he swears that he will fulfill 
this promise to Abraham. Meaning that just like these animals are bleeding, so be it to me if the lesser doesn't keep his end of the agreement. And the lesser is us. And we didn't keep our end of the bargain. And so God had to do this for us. First John just says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the word propitiation is a big word, and it's an important word, and it means to turn away God's wrath or to appease his wrath, his anger, that he is angered by our sins. And the Hebrew term for this is, the Hebrew word is af, for nostrils. And the idea is that God's nostrils are, he's angry at our sins. And yet Jesus comes and offers himself as a sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma that goes up and appeases the af of God. His nostrils smell this sweet-smelling aroma of God's offering himself on our behalf, and God is appeased by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place for our sins. That's what Christ has come to do. God is confirming his promise of walking between the pieces. And so now in the fullness of time, God didn't send a letter, didn't send a postcard, not an evite, not an email, not a telegraph, not a text, not a prophet, not even a priest. We are told long ago and at many times in many ways God spoke to our, fa- to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, the high priest before Jesus never sat down. They're always standing because their work was never finished. One sacrifice after another, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And by his once-for-all atonement, laying down his life for us all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. God is the script writer, but he's the lead character of this story. And he writes himself into the play, the word becomes flesh. And he dwells among us and dwelt among us. So how did God do that? Well, the Bible just simply says here, born of woman, born under the law. In religion and philosophy, it seems like we we tend to gravitate towards one or two extremes. Either God is really far off, he's transcendent, and please leave him there in the Upper story, as Kant would say, and and deism likes to say he set things in motion and then he doesn't have anything to do with this lower story world. Or you have skepticism that says, you know, we can't really know, and agnosticism. He's, He's upper story and he doesn't really come down to this story. That's one extreme to kind of leave, you know, basically I can be God in this little world of mine and I don't have to worry about God. But the other extreme is then to to bring him down into our world but to take away 
any of his transcendent attributes. So the idea is to bring him down and, and you have pantheisms where God is just in everything. Or, or God is love, which basically means love is God, or as, or as Lewis would refer to him, C.S. Lewis, that God is just this senile, benevolent grandfather who always says at the end of the day, wasn't a good time had by all. You know, the idea is that God is basically like Mr. Rogers. He's just a really nice guy to everybody and never has anything uh, difficult to say to anybody. You know, God is basically this magic foot, this genie that I can pet for protection, ask for blessings and wishes, but I get to be God in the lower world. Well, Jesus Christ breaks in from the upper world, comes down into the lower world. And he demonstrates clearly that he rules the upper world, the heavens, but now he comes and demonstrates that he rules the lower world. He drives out demons. He heals lepers. He causes the blind to see and the mute to speak. He multiplies loaves and fishes and he causes, turns water into wine instantly and he heals a woman by, who just simply touches him and he calms the sea by a, a mere word and, and he walks on the water like it's concrete. He clearly rules over the fish by miraculously bringing him into nets more than once. And he can raise the dead, and ultimately he himself is raised from the dead. We see that Jesus is both upper story, ruler of heaven, and now he comes down and he's the ruler of the lower story. He's transcendent, yet he's imminent. He's God, and yet he's man. Two distinct natures, yet one person forever. He's born of a woman, born under law. Jesus is as human as you and I are, yet without sin. He was an embryo. He was born. He was delivered. He cried. He was an infant. He nursed from his mother. He learned how to walk. He learned how to talk. He got tired. He, he had probably had sleepless nights. He, he knew poverty. He got hungry, really hungry. He was tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin. And he knew rejection. He knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew loneliness. He knew what it was like to be laughed at, insulted, falsely accused, scorned, spit on, beaten, punched, mocked, and crucified in shame. It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to be both God and man in two natures in this one person. There's a theologian by the name of Francis Turretin who was a great theologian after Calvin, and he put it like this, to accomplish these things, your salvation, man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we endured, God to endure and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of flesh, God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the Spirit. This neither a mere man nor God alone could do, for neither could God alone be subject to death, nor could man alone conquer it. Man alone could, could die for men, God alone could vanquish death. Both natures, therefore, should be associated, that in both conjoined, both the highest weakness of humanity might exert itself for suffering, and the highest power and majesty of the divinity might exert itself for the victory. The Bible just says, great is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. This is a mystery that ultimately we're to marvel at. 
He's born under the law. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he's circumcised on the eighth day. He's baptized by John the Baptist in order to what? Fulfill all righteousness. He loved the Lord as God. He loved his Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year, of his entire life. He's the only one righteous. He is called Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the advocate for us now, interceding at the right hand of the Father. He's also the only one who's loved his neighbor as himself. I mean, just think about from his arrest through his crucifixion. At his arrest, he's more concerned about Malchus, who's lost his ear, than he is for himself. And then he's more concerned about his disciples and their faith, and that they not be taken and he be taken, so that he would lose none. He's more concerned about others than himself. And on the cross, he's praying for forgiveness on the very ones who are lynching him. He cares for his mother who's losing her son. He has compassion on one of the thieves next to him and promises him paradise. You see, Jesus is fulfilling the law of love like no one else. He is God's son, fully man, fully God, born of woman, born under the law, the son of God. Why did God do that? Paul makes this very clear to us. To redeem those under the law in order that we might receive adoption as sons. So the first might be the negative or the, you know, he's got to take, deal with our sin. But then, and that's often where we stop. If you ask people, what is the gospel? What is the story of the Bible? It's Jesus died on the cross from our sins. Okay, that's point one. Give me point two and three. Point two is that, according to this, is that so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sends two gifts in this passage. Two gifts. He sent his son, and then he sent the spirit of his son. He sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And and then the great third gift is now we will be heirs. Heirs. We have the inheritance. It's all ours. We are sons. Paul makes this point to us. To say that Jesus was born under the law is that Jesus was a human being in the image of God. And as an image bearer, we're to reflect that glory perfectly. And only Jesus has done it perfectly. And we have a problem from the very beginning of the story, don't we? Is that Adam and Eve are walking with God in the coolness of the day. They have Emmanuel, God, with them. But then when they sinned, God had to get them out of the garden, lest they should eat of the tree of life. It was unthinkable. The story stops like in mid-sentence. Ah, we've got to do something about this. We have to deal with this problem of sin. And the rest of the Bible is the drama of how God is going to deal with this problem. And it's not going to be through Adam. Adam has brought sin and death and condemnation. Jesus comes to bring something much better, righteousness justification, and eternal life. And he becomes, Galatians 3.13, is he becomes the curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, who's hanged on a tree. And yet God had promised that he would bless one who came from the seed of Abraham. Through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. How do we get the blessing? We get it through Jesus being the curse that we deserved. And so this great exchange at the cross is Jesus hangs on a tree that the blessing now would fall upon those 
who trust in Jesus, that Jesus has taken my curse and my shame. And so this is described in the wonderful story, kids, that you know of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son comes home, all he, all he does in the story is come home. His confession is not very good. <laughs> He's kind of worked this thing, and he wants to be a hired servant. He doesn't understand grace. He wants to work for it. But when he comes home, what does the father do? The father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. And then he says, quick, put the best robe on his back the best one, and and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet because he's restoring all the marks and status of sonship, that this is a favored son. Put the best robe on him and a ring for his family authority and a sandals that mark him off from different than the servants. He is a son. He is marked out and loved, and his shame is covered. And this is for all of us who trust in Jesus. We're not just born children of God by, by nature of just being born. We are, have to be born again to be children of God, as the Bible says, that those who believed, that to those who call on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the great promise of the new covenant is this, 2 Corinthians 6.18. God says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Consider his love personally for you this morning. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are, he says twice in 1 John. We don't know what we shall be, but we know what we now are. We are children of God. And then this profound verse that we often just skip right over in John 17. Listen to what Jesus prays as he lets us eavesdrop in on the prayer. I and them and you and me, he prays to the Father. And he's praying that the church would be perfectly one. So the world would know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Think about that. Father, I pray that they would be one. That the world would know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Man, We want the world to understand that, man. We need the church to understand that. As adopted children, you are loved in the same way that the Father loves the Son. Wrestle with that. You see, this is our identity because if this is true, then we begin to cry out. Because as sons of God, we cry out, Daddy. That's Abba. That's the word, Daddy. How do you view yourself as a Christian? What is your identity? Who are you? Listen to this famous James Packer quote from Knowing God. Do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real identity. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. 
Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. Say it over and over to yourself the first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, any time when your mind is free, and ask that you may be able to live as one who knows it as all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian's secret of a happy life. Yes, certainly, but we have something both higher and profounder to say. This is the Christian secret of a Christian life. And then he says, may this secret become fully yours and fully mine. You see, when we get this, then the whole idea of crying out, Abba, Father, is the idea is that he puts his spirit in our hearts so that we begin to pray. And as Tammy introduced her Sunday school class from this Tim Chester book, the first three points of the book are Trinitarian. And they're real simple. The father loves to hear his children praying. Point one. Point two, the Spirit, or Jesus, makes all of our prayers pleasing to God. They're all now made acceptable because they're offered through Jesus. He loves to hear his children praying. All the prayers are made pleasing. And lastly, the Spirit helps us to pray and even causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. So Christmas is ultimately to make you sons and daughters of God so that you would live more dependently upon him and have these full rights and access of being children, all your shame covered, not publicly crashing the car and having to be shamed and taking the helmet off and embarrassed in front of everybody. Now you are crowned and coronated as a son with a ring on your finger and a robe on your back and shoes on your feet. Then you have all the status of sons so that you can cry and come freely and boldly to God because God has come down from the upper story to the lower story and has made an acceptable offering and God was pleased to accept the offering and he raised him from the dead to prove that he accepted the offering and that our sins have been forgiven. And now this is our identity is children of God. Are you his children? The way to become a child is through the Son and putting your trust in Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, may we know this is good news in the bottom half of our hearts. It's still dark. May we not run from You try to escape from you, but run to you. Lord God, you have loved us with an everlasting love, pursued us while we ran from you. You came down from heaven to save us from our sin. Lord, you pursued us, put your spirit in our hearts to lift up our heads and our hearts that we would cry out to you as a good father, who gives good gifts to his children. Help us to see that you are not the problem, but that we've had hard thoughts about you. Forgive us, Lord, and lead us to fresh repentance in light of your kindness. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.